I'm Jan Orman, and you're listening to the Black Dog Institute's eMental Health in Practice podcast. This episode is called Diversity Online. Before we start, I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional custodians of this land and to the elders past, present and future. A few months ago, I asked one of my senior colleagues whether he's ever thought about using the online space to provide psychological support for LGBTI people. His response surprised me. Not really. There's no evidence to support any need for it. LGBTI people get the same anxiety and depression as everyone else, and it can be treated the same way. I guess I was surprised because the online treatment programs have been developed and are available for all the community and there are programs that are available for special sections of the community as well. There are programs for example for teenagers and for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. These special programs don't differ so much in terms of their content, the therapy content that is, but they're presented in a way that makes their intended audience more comfortable and more likely to engage with that content. And we know that engagement is a really important issue when it comes to online therapy. In these programs, the people in the pictures are made older, younger, more indigenous looking, and the patient's stories that are used are adjusted to resonate more with the appropriate audience. I wondered why this wouldn't be right for an LGBTI audience as well. That's what motivated me to look at what's going on in the mental health space as far as online programs are concerned for the LGBTI population. I thought we should start out by making sure we are all on the same page as far as terminology is concerned. I spoke to Sally Morris, National Project Coordinator for MindOut for the National LGBTI Health Alliance. I asked Sally why there was all this fuss about terminology and why all these different sorts of people are grouped together in a long and cumbersome acronym, LGBTI, and sometimes QA+. The acronym LGBTI or LGBTIQ is actually uh, a composite, a bit of a mishmash of lots of different identities and experiences all put together. And we're put together because there are some similarities in our experiences, but also there's, a, there's vast differences as well. So the, the LGB part of our acronym talks to sexuality, so who we're attracted to, who we're in relationships with. Um, the T part of our acronym um, represents transgender people, which is around gender identities. So uh, as someone's gender, um, their sense of being male or female is different to what we think it should be based on what their body looks like, to what society thinks it should be. Um, and I for intersex, which is about diversity of body. So intersex people are born with sex characteristics that don't nicely fit the the, the strict definition of male or female. I guess when we're talking about LGBTI communities, it is this really complex space of a lot of diversity. And I love that diversity in our community, but also it's sometimes it's hard when we're just looking for a really simple way to talk about who we are collectively. So for us, it's a bit of this balance. Often we'll use easy, accessible language such as LGBTI or LGBTIQ, but often have the conversation about actually who we're talking about is a much broader scope. So we're talking about people who, who don't quite fit these definitions as well, so who fit in between these letters and, yeah. 
Listening to Sally, it sounds like it's important for practitioners to understand what the terms mean, but that the best thing to do is to check with the person concerned to see how they choose to identify themselves. I asked Stella Topaz, National Project Coordinator for QLife, which she'll tell you more about later, what proportion of the Australian population identifies as LGBTI? It seems like that wasn't an easy question to answer either. It's a tricky question, isn't it? And I think a lot of us have been exposed to generalisations such as perhaps 10% of the population But really these things are sort of guesses and they might come from different polls and different research Um, and, of course, there's a lot of room for error and change in that. And I guess the other thing is that a lot of people don't see themselves as fixed around their sexuality or their gender um, and they may see themselves on a continuum. So it also depends on the quality of the question. So if you ask somebody whether they've ever had an attraction for somebody of the same sex, you might get a different answer than if you ask somebody if they're lesbian or gay So many people, or bisexual. So many people might not identify with those terms lesbian, gay, bisexual, but they may identify that they have attractions that move across genders and sexualities. Um, we, we have um, the intersex communities have done quite a lot of research um, for themselves and Again, it's difficult to um, quantify because a lot of medical records are attached to intersex people. A lot of shame and secrecy can happen for intersex people. But they generally regard um, that there's about 3% of intersex people in in any given population. The other thing about um, talking about this is that there's areas where research is not done. So figures aren't really picked up either of things like intersex surgeries or there may not be accurate figures of people who seek services to um, affirm their gender for transgender people. And there may be people who are transgender but they never seek medical services. They just live with their transgender identity without any intervention. So, yeah, it's really difficult to quantify. I was speaking to Sally and Stella on the 15th of November 2017 and you'll probably recognise that as an auspicious date for the LGBTI community in Australia. It's the date that the results of the postal survey on marriage equality were announced. In the lead up to that day there was a lot of community and media talk about LGBTI people, not all of it pleasant to hear. And a lot of LGBTI people had been seeking help for the distress that the campaigning had caused. All this happened on top of the general increased prevalence of psychological distress and mental illness that LGBTI people experience at the best of times. Using the K10 scale, which is often used by GPs to assess the mental wellness of, of patients, the general population usually comes has a low score of about 14.5. Um, but when we look at lesbian, gay, bisexual people, we see a score of about 18 to 19. Uh, for trans people, around 23. And for bisexual people, around 22. Um, which puts them into the, the high or very high level risk of psychological distress. Though also, you might note that we actually don't have data on intersex people around psychological distress as well. We actually don't have data on suicide deaths in the LGBTI communities, mostly because this question, this data is not collected um, by suicide registers in Australia or, or even anywhere globally, actually. But we do know from attempts that versus to the general population, about 3.2% of the general population have attempted suicide in their lifetime. Um, as, 
as LGBTI people self-report, around 16% of LGBTI young people, around 35% of trans people, and around 19% of intersex people have attempted suicide in a lifetime. So significantly higher than the general population. So the LGBTI community has about twice the level of disorder diagnosis than the general community. And specifically in this um, is depression and anxiety are particularly the areas where we're overrepresented. And so we can see with the statistics here, um, compared to the general population, LGBTI people have much higher rates, but also within our LGBTI community, um, usually bisexual, trans and intersex people are even more higher risk than gay and lesbian people. I talked to Stella and Sally about why it might be that LGBTI people have such high levels of psychological distress. Today is a really pertinent day to talk about this because we have seen a um, very public debate about people's lives and choices and relationships and who we are as people. And for me, as a queer lesbian, it's quite a mixed day because at one level what I'm hearing is is majority support and at another level I'm looking around and realising that 38% of people still don't see my relationships as equal. So a very public debate is a really good example of how pressure is put upon a group or individuals by um, social views and social um, and laws and that that actually can have a really detrimental effect on people's psychological state. So it is not the essence of being gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender or having intersex characteristics that makes somebody have a mental illness or mental distress. It's the external factors that may be in their uh, family or maybe in their um, church or their community or in the media. Those are the factors that actually put the pressure. So. I'm guessing that many of you understand that and um, I guess articulating that it can be really important because it helps language when, when somebody is feeling depressed or isolated, it can really help to hear it's actually really understandable that you feel like that if you can't be yourself in your family or it's really understandable if you can't be yourself at work or if you face a decision at a daily level to to, to be out or not be out. So it, it is important for, for us to be able to show leadership around that, to be able to affirm people that it's not an internal intrinsic deficit. It's actually a consequence of their social environment. Because we have seen lots of social change over the last you know decade or so, you know, the last couple of decades, I think people in the general community often dismiss and go, oh, but everything's okay now. However, I think, you know, today's survey's result, even though it was majority, yes, there was still a portion of the community that said no. And so as LGBTI people, as we navigate the world, we're constantly having to assess, am I safe in this situation? So if I'm catching a taxi to the airport, am I safe? And especially, um, I think, accessing healthcare professionals, there's that moment of, can I tell this person who I am? And if I do, what will the reaction be? Um, will the quality of my service diminish? Uh, will I be asked a series of curious questions that aren't relevant? Um, will I actually just be denied service completely? Uh, will I be, be ignored? And as LGBTI people, we sort of carry that sense of being unsafe wherever we go. And we went on to talk about a young man called Graham. 
a same-sex attracted man from a rural area who'd had a relationship with a young woman in his teens, experienced a depressive episode when his father died, and is now presenting with the beginning of another depressive episode in the wake of his mother's dementia diagnosis. I asked Stella and Sally if they thought it was important that for one reason or another, Graham had never mentioned his sexuality to his treating health professionals. Yeah, and I think the question of is Graham's sexuality relevant, I think we actually don't know. Um, and the fact actually we don't know in of itself means it's worthy of exploring. Um, it's about, I guess, when you're working with someone and trying to figure out what's going on for them, it's, it's about putting together jigsaw puzzles and pulling out the mystery. And there's lots of different factors going on here for Graham. And actually, I think Graham is a great demonstration of earlier we had the feeling behaviour identity framework. So where his behaviour, so he's in a, a relationship with a female, is different to his feelings. So he has same-sex attracted feelings. And so there's this difference, there's this contrast. Um, and I imagine with that contrast that he's going to be feeling quite unsafe about disclosing that. And in particularly when it's a small community and people know people and there, there could be that extra stress of... Um, worrying about privacy and confidentiality, about if I disclose some of these underlying thoughts and feelings I have to my practitioner, what might happen to that information? Might it get back to other people who know me outside of this, this space? And what might the consequences be if that does get disclosed or not? Some of the things that come up for me about this scenario is the subtlety that might be asked of you as a practitioner to try to listen out for the things that Graham's not saying as well as the things that he is saying. As Sally said, he may not be ready to disclose that his feelings lie with attraction for other boys or men, but that his um, outward relationship is with a, a, a girl or a woman. So um, sometimes questions such as um, where do you where do you feel my, most comfortable in your life? Who do you talk to? Where do you feel like you can be most yourself? Do you have a sense of where you belong? So sometimes asking questions that are in, a little bit more inquiring that might allow Graham to say, well, I have a lovely relationship, but I don't feel like I can fully be myself. And, you know, you, you may or may not get far with that, but I guess it's like, it's like trying to open questions rather than trying to guess the answer because you can't know. The other thing is that um, there are ways of avoiding pronouns, for example. So even though somebody said, I've got a girlfriend, if you've got a sense, you might want to say, do, do you, um, you know, can you tell me a bit about your relationships? Have you had other partners before? You know, have you other, had other attractions before? And in that, you're not saying girls, you're, you're actually opening that conversation. Or you might even say, um, you know, have you been involved with boys or girls before? You do risk that you might embarrass someone, but what you're really demonstrating is your willingness to, for them to tell their story rather than for you to assume it. It's kind of important to get a relationship history from people, isn't it? Yeah, I think a relationship history is a great way to put it. And it's, um, it's tricky with young people because, of course, there's a lot of sensitivity, but really what you're doing is thinking about how you create the openings and even if the person doesn't respond, it may be that in two months or a year, what you've created creates them the opportunity to go and talk to somebody else. The fact that you've inquired about where they feel most comfortable or where they might feel most themselves has actually created some new language and some new concepts. And, you know, we find with um, people who make contact with the service, 
they might make contact four or five times before they actually tell you why they've made contact and it's going to be the quality of your sensitivity that's going to get them to come back again. So what other things are important? What have we talked about? We've talked about not making assumptions. We've talked about the pronouns. We've talked about maybe make, getting some relationship history from people. Are there any other other issues that we need to consider? Should we consider the possibility of, of trauma that someone like Graham isn't talking about? Yeah, I mean, I, I again, I think having those inquiring questions is really great. It's a tricky thing whether you share something yourself or not because sometimes that can go horribly wrong. <laughs> but there could be um, some of the things that we find is particularly with QLife, which is an um, anonymous phone and web chat service national, people often ring because they know that the people they're speaking to are from LGBTI communities themselves. So it's a peer-run service. So just being able to talk to someone who can affirm them that there is a whole bunch of other people out there so if Graham did say oh sometimes I feel a bit bad or I have these attractions for boys normalizing that is like such a big step in terms of saying aha you know that's um that's not uncommon for people to have attractions for someone of the same sex as them or you know I know there's a group that meets in the town next door where people come you know like it's actually you're just creating that sense that they're not alone I think it's also probably worth mentioning that examining our own attitudes is an important thing to do as well. And we may need to, to do so by getting some supervision around the issue. Yeah, and there, there are lots of resources and we'll touch on that at the end. But I mean, there, the QLife does have a series of resources specifically for health professionals around working with different topics and people within the LGBTI community. So they're specifically written for practitioners who um, may have different levels of comfort or experience or exposure to, to help you in your work. Okay, and with that, let's talk about the resources that are available online. And I'll give Sally a turn first because she's going to tell us about MindOut. Yeah, so MindOut, we're a nationally um, funded through Department of Health um, project to provide leadership in LGBTI mental health and suicide prevention. So we're actually, we're not a program for that delivers service delivery to clients. We actually provide support and professional development to the sector, to people working in mental health. Um, so we do a range of uh, professional development. We have resources. We also do webinars similar to what we're doing here tonight. Um, you know, fact sheets, um, we provide direct support to organisations to increase their capacity. Even though there are LGBTI specific services out there that some LGBTI people will access, in many spaces there aren't specific services um, and it is vital that all services are accessible and inclusive to LGBTI people. So MindOut is really about supporting our sector to be better at supporting the people who need need the help and support. So um, yeah, so we're all about providing support to organisations and practitioners. So head to our website, check out our resources. This sounds like a very good thing for us to know about Sally. For our patients, and maybe some of us, there's QLife. Stella, tell us about QLife. Yeah, so QLife is also funded through the federal government and has been around for about four years. Prior to that, most of the states had their own volunteer-run gay and lesbian counselling services. Um, but those counselling services were struggling to survive at the local level and they came together and decided to um, tender for some federal funding and QLife was born as the national um, peer counselling service which now has some um, funding for partner sites in four states. 
and there's volunteers and some paid um, counsellors who work on QLife and they specifically have experience, lived experience in LGBTI communities. It's free, it's anonymous, it's web chat or phone and web chat is preferred by young people and people in rural and regional areas um, and is increasingly popular. Um, and also we do do those health resources, um, those health guides for, for practitioners. And there's also a really great series of um, short films called Q Lives, which are lived experiences of people of different experiences. They're like two or three minutes each and they're fantastic if you're doing a training or, a, um, or you might be doing some staff education yourself. You can just pop a couple of those on talking about bisexuality or intersex or transgender experience or living being gay in a rural area there's some really great stories there so i really encourage you to look for those as well stella i think the films are fantastic they're really good aren't they and they've stood they've stood up yeah. yeah yeah the other thing to make a point about is that that uh, telephone call line is only open from 3 p.m till midnight isn't it yes thank um, you that's that's as far as our funding allows at the moment and we <laughs> we do often have much more demand than we can meet unfortunately and um Certainly, sometimes people might take a few tries before they get through, but that's really just that we're doing the best we can with the resources we have. What about the online chat space? Is it only available between those hours yes, as well? Yes, so the whole queue life is open 3pm till midnight every day of the year. Okay, that's great. Thank you for that. I want to tell you about Q Headspace. I'm sure you all know about eHeadspace, which is the, the um, adolescent-focused website from the Headspace people. Um, eHeadspace has a fantastic page on it called Q Headspace, and Q Headspace contains group chats. Now, um, they do live group chats on particular subject areas that they advertise in advance are going to happen and the live chat sessions are um, moderated by peers and then there's another layer of moderation by professionals above that so you'll see in the transcripts if you go to the transcripts that there's sometimes a delay in answering a question while the peers consult with the the professionals so it's very well moderated and also you can find as I indicated, the, the transcripts of previous live chat group chats and that is a fantastic way to learn yourself about what's going on for adolescents who've got concerns about their sexuality or gender. Last but not least is a new platform that I'm sure none of you have heard of yet. It is a general platform with a whole new range of e-mental health treatment programs on it. My Digital Health um, includes LifeFlex, which is a program for anxiety and depression, I Sleep Well, a program for insomnia. I Choose Well, a general wellness program. A program for benzodiazepine reduction. A mindfulness program. A PTSD program. And an, a, a self-help crisis support program. Now, all of these programs from My Digital Health are still in the research phase. Some of them in the very last phase of the research phase. They're all transdiagnostic programs. The LifeFlex program is a transdiagnostic program, 
based on the biopsychosocial model with special emphasis on neuroplasticity. And as a result of that, there's a lot of offline activity built in to the LifeFlex program. You'll find if you go and have a look at it that it's quite different from the CBT-based programs that we've been talking about for the last few years that are the most common programs available in Australia. The LifeFlex program is suitable for use on both desktop and mobile devices. And the really big news and the reason it's in this particular webinar is that a few weeks ago, LifeFlex LGBQ was launched. Now, it's an anxiety and depression intervention program that's specifically designed for LGBQ people. I've got Professor Britt Klein speaking on a recording. She's the director of the Centre for Biopsychosocial Research and eHealth Research and Innovation at Federation University. Now, Federation University is based in Ballarat and is a, a a combination of a group of rural universities in Victoria and Brit is an absolute whiz when it comes to online treatment programs. Here we have her telling us about how she took the LifeFlex anxiety and depression program and made it appropriate for LGBTQ users. In essence, we wanted to create a tailored program that better acknowledged the lived experience of many lesbian, gay, bisexual and queer people by exploring and discussing the added burdens and daily stresses that many have had to experience over their lifetime. We started off by making some superficial changes, such as changing the program's trim colour, the program brand picture, and added an extension to the LifeLex name. However, the more important changes included a complete overhaul of the pictures used within the module pages so that they were more representative of LGBTQ people, such as pictures of same-sex couples, for example. We provide a rationale around why we tailored the LifeLex program and discuss key things such as heterosexism, external homophobia and internalised homophobia. Internalised homophobia is explored in considerable depth and includes sections on how to identify, work on and better manage these feelings. Where appropriate, we've modified the current generic everyday examples and case studies so that they better reflect the LGBTQ lived experience. We've also included a new increasing wellness flexibility strategy around increasing self-esteem with a particular focus on self-acceptance. We've also included more information in our social connectedness, increasing wellness flexibility strategy to further include a sense of belongingness given our own research in this area. We do hope that this tailored version will be of added benefit for LGBTQ people in our community. So LifeFlex LGBTQ is for adults and it focuses on teaching people to respond flexibly and adaptively to stress and adversity. All that is good news for members of the LGBTQ community and for practitioners who care for them. It will be interesting to see the results of the research and whether or not a tailored treatment program does indeed make a difference to treatment outcomes for this group of people. So we've talked about Mind Out and QLife from the National LGBTI Health Alliance. We've talked about Q Headspace and we've talked about LifeFlex LGBTQ from Federation University. 
I hope that provides you with a solid starting point for using online resources in your care of LGBTI patients. If you'd like to hear the whole webinar on which this podcast was based and see the slides, it's available on demand on the MPRAC page of the Black Dog Institute website. Thank you for listening.